individual who had the greatest reason to hold a grudge displayed the greatest sense of magnanimity. Hey, welcome to On My Walk, the reading podcast that helps you capture reading's aha moments and apply them to your life and leadership. Well, one man stood on the balcony of Buckingham Palace, side by side with a king and queen, waving to a cheering crowd. He soaked up the accolades of the adoring throng who longed for the peace he promised. The other, well, he would leave a group of friends, and as he did, he passed a birthday party that was overflowing with the joy that birthday parties bring, and he muttered to himself, Those poor people, they little know what they have to face. Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill are two ends of a philosophical continuum when it came to the rise of Hitler and Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Chamberlain, longtime conservative member of parliament and prime minister from May of 37 to May of 1940, was the champion of appeasement. And he, along with a vast majority of the country, were really blind to Hitler and the possibility of war. They pined for peace. And it was almost as if they'd do anything to to get peace and to have peace. Churchill, on the other hand, who often saw around corners, had been warning his country for years of the impending menace that is Adolf Hitler. He saw the war the rest of his government colleagues could not, or for the desire of peace, simply would not see. And despite his continual dire predictions, for years he was ignored, cast aside, and ridiculed. Then came the Munich Agreement of September 1938. Chamberlain, fooled by Hitler's promises of peace, took home the news to his country, peace with honor, peace in our time, and they hailed him as a hero. Now, Churchill, he had an entirely different perspective. He saw Hitler annex Austria and then Czechoslovakia, and he read the writing on the wall. There wasn't going to be any peace. In fact, he had seen this coming for years. Now, bear with me, but I want you to see the pattern in order to appreciate the grief he had to endure in order that you might appreciate the four words he'd utter. So hang with me. So think with me. March 1932, Churchill gives his first reference to Hitler. November 1932, his first speech warning the UK on German rearmament. April 1933, he sees the persecutions of Jews in Germany begin. February 1934, Churchill urges Parliament to address the fact that Great Britain was woefully unprepared should a war break out. But Neville Chamberlain, oh no, he refused to spend the money because he felt it would hold back the country from growing. October 1935, Churchill warns the UK again, rearm. February 1936, Churchill warns the House of Commons, hey, Germany is spending 1.5 billion pounds on rearmament. That's $106 billion today. March 1938, he notes that over the last five or six years, the leading group of his party had indeed displayed cowardness and short-sightedness on a scale which few, if any, precedents in history. In March 1938, he warned that the Nazis, quote, posed a threat to Czechoslovakia. Now, you see in a pattern here, 
I mean, even some in Germany recognized the danger of Churchill as a foe. As early as 1935, Germany's deputy Führer, Rudolf Hess, asked Lord Londonberry's son, Why do you not have Winston Churchill in your British cabinet? Then we should know you meant business. So Churchill was not too popular on a home front that longed for peace and with a parliament that did everything they could to provide it by signing agreements with Hitler that they never should have. And when it came to Churchill, well, they just criticized. So a common critique used against Churchill was one which a Captain Jones said, I admire his brains and mental capacity, but I decry his judgment. Chamberlain said something similar. He said, if I were asked whether judgment is the first of my right honorable friend so many admirable qualities, I should have to ask the House of Commons not to press me too far. And of course, this was greeted with loud laughter at Churchill's expense in Parliament. At the same time, Churchill is receiving this ridicule in the House. Neville Chamberlain is being lauded as one of the greatest premiers England has ever seen, and the Munich Agreement as one of the greatest acts in history. Now, about all this, Andrew Roberts writes about the latter part of 1938. Here's what Roberts says, and I quote, Over the next five months, Churchill had to fight the government whips, the prime minister, the press, especially the Times, conservative central office, his backbench colleagues, the security services, and his own constituency association. Then the tide begins to turn. September 1939, Hitler invades Poland, and Great Britain and France finally declare war. Now, Chamberlain at this point, although he didn't really like Churchill, knows that he has to welcome Churchill back to a cabinet-level post. Roberts writes that the majority of conservatives had been proved so spectacularly wrong about Hitler was not going to lessen their antagonism toward Churchill. Indeed, it might have even made things worse. But that was okay with Churchill. He walked into the Admiralty office smiling. Listen to this clip. So it was that I came again to the room I had quitted in pain and sorrow almost a quarter of a century before, Churchill later wrote. Once again we must fight for life and honor against all the might and fury of the valiant, disciplined, and ruthless German race. Once again... So be it. He remained at the Admiralty until the early hours of the following morning, familiarizing himself with fleet positions, and had charts brought in of the North Sea of which he said, I used these last time. He also asked for an octagonal table he used to have, which was produced by the office keeper. A few days later Churchill received a letter from Colin Thornton Kemsley MP, written from his army camp. I have opposed you as hard as I knew how, it read. I want to say only this. You warned us repeatedly about the German danger, and you were right. Please don't think of replying. You are in all conscience busy enough in an office which we are all glad that you hold in this time of Britain's danger. Churchill, of course, did reply, accepting the apology and adding, I certainly think that Englishmen ought to stand fair with each other from the outset in so grievous a struggle, and so far as I am concerned, the past is dead. You know, if there were anyone who had a reason to hold a grudge, it was Winston Churchill. 
Think about it. I mean, to be beat down, ignored, even shunned, and then to turn around and say, the past is dead? That, my friends, is magnanimity. And then as Chamberlain fails to provide the leadership the country needs, the king turns to Winston Churchill to become prime minister and to build a government. So on June 18, 1940, Winston Churchill steps into the House of Commons to deliver a speech. And he could have said, I told you so, especially because now many were wanting to give it to Chamberlain and the appeasers. But instead of this, Churchill says this, and it's brilliant. If we open a quarrel between the past and the present, we will find that we have lost the future. And even when Churchill's own son, Randolph, wanted to punish leading appeasers, Churchill said, we don't want to punish anyone now except the enemy. And then when Neville Chamberlain died of cancer in in November of 1940, Churchill chose to highlight his, quote, benevolent instincts that, that Chamberlain was striving, quote, to the utmost of his capacity and authority, which were powerful to save the world from the awful, devastating struggle in which we are now engaged. In other words, Churchill was repeating the same thing. The past is dead. Why go there? You know, I suspect politics has always been divisive, but what kind of progress might we see in our country, in our cities, if we too could look at the unpleasant stains of previous years and say, the past is dead? You know, I'm recording this just a few days after the untimely death of Darren Patrick, a one-time prominent leader in the church, a leader who fell and yet by the grace of God rose to serve again. And the events of his death are cloudy, but I wonder, might his years of service linger longer had more Christian leaders treated him with the same kind of magnanimity that Churchill treated his enemies? Troubles come. Coarse words are spoken. Leaders bear the pain. But when the tables turn, the magnanimous leader says, the past is dead. And that's my thought on my walk with Winston Churchill, Andrew Roberts, and walking with destiny. Thanks for putting up with this post. It was a little bit longer than normal, but hey, I'm more than halfway through this 1,100 pages walking with destiny by Roberts, and it has been absolutely spectacular. The book title, Walking with Destiny, comes from the final lines in book one of Churchill's The Gathering Storm, his uh, six-volume history on World War II. He said at that point in time, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. You know, what's true of Churchill is true of you. Paul said, from one man, God created all the nations throughout the whole earth, and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Yes, that includes Churchill, but that also includes you. And that's all the more reason we should be maximizing these days of leadership and refuse to let the smoldering embers of conflict and bitterness get the best of us. The past is dead. 